Barney's doesn't guarantee success. Vogue doesn't guarantee success. What guarantees success is if you actually find an audience that actually loves your product. We've been very slow to change in terms of how technology has impacted our lives. A new social network can pop up overnight and completely change our business model. Hello and welcome to the Glossy Podcast, our weekly show where we discuss fashion, luxury, and technology with the people making change happen. I'm your host, Hilary Milnes, and this week we'll be recapping highlights from our top episodes in 2018. This past year, we've covered the biggest trends in fashion business, including the rise of direct-to-consumer, the implications of social media and influencer marketing, major acquisitions, and Amazon's effect on retail. Earlier this year, I sat down with the influencer Blair Eady to talk about why the influencer bubble is a myth. Eady's theory is that it's not the influencer changing how the fashion industry works, it's the consumers and where they're putting their time and money that has created the most impact. I did want to hit on kind of like the, the influencer bubble because I just mm. think that that is a, a funny thing that people love to talk about. And I think the one thing that always um, surprises me is when people say, when is this influencer bubble going to burst? And I almost laugh and I'm like, these are these the same people who thought like the internet wasn't going to stick around? And <laughs> I think for me, it's not about the influencer bubble. It's about recognizing that this whole industry isn't driven by influencers. It's driven by a consumer and a reader. So the consumers and readers vote with their clicks, their views, and their wallet. Mm -hmm. And they have clearly voted that they are influenced by Instagrammers, the people that they follow. And so for me, it's about actually the industry and brands recognizing and not recognizing that it's more about the consumer behavior has changed. And I think that's a conversation that doesn't happen often because I think that a lot of people focus on, oh, you know, the salacious articles of like, this 20-year-old is making X millions of dollars and this and that. Mm -hmm. But I think the point is, is that people are missing the fact that let's talk about how the consumer has changed and the consumer has changed the way that they are obviously shopping, the way that they're getting information, the way that they're seeing trends, the way that they're consuming information, everything from ads to, you know, anything that they're watching. And so I think that that that's actually the conversation conversation that needs to be had is that I don't know necessarily if the the blogger influencer space will continue to grow as much as it has over the last five years. But the idea is those consumers are now on those platforms and they're looking for people to relate to to obviously inform their purchases. So how are you going to connect with them? And how are you going to continue to evolve with the customer? And it's just, it's very it's very interesting to me that people focus more on the bloggers and the influencers because there's these numbers and these large dollars that are behind it that people love to like talk about. Mm -hmm. But the idea is that like, consumers have completely changed their behavior and there's no going back from that. Right. And to that end, do you think that influencers have been more disruptive to the editorial publishing industry or the or the brand marketing industry? It's interesting. I I think that it bloggers have obviously disrupted the editorial industry. But I think at the end of the day, like we will always need those insanely informed journalistic editors who really know the industry. And I think that that will always exist. But again, like how do you evolve and how do you allow editors to be on platforms where they can reach people? Mm -hmm. I think influencers and bloggers have definitely disrupted more of the brand marketing side because I think that is where brands are scrambling to figure out how to capitalize on those consumers who change their behavior. And right now, those consumers who change their behavior are following all of those influencers. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think, to be honest, I think for brands, it is kind of tough because it's also not, 
it's a very fragmented strategy. So before, if you were a large brand, just like coming from the other side, it was like, great, what are your big ad buys going to be this season? You know, everything from TV to radio, working at like a very large brand um, to obviously just, you know, newspaper, um, magazine. But now what they're having to do is they are having to hire people, as you said, who understand the industry to inform them who they should be spending their dollars with. But then in order to kind of really get that reach like a Revolve, they're having to work with so many different influencers who all work in different ways, who Mm -hmm. all have different agents. And I think for them, I'm like, it must be exhausting. Like, I sympathize. Um, And so I I think it definitely has disrupted more of the brand marketing side because brands are now having to work in these ways that are scalable, but it's almost like death by a thousand paper cuts because instead mm-hmm. of before it was like, okay, great, we're just gonna like place these two big ad buys and like that's it for the season. And now they're obviously having to work with so many different people across so many different countries, time zones, all of these different things that I think it's just more complicated. Although social media has become a valuable way for brands to reach their customers, we've learned that it is certainly not foolproof. During a live taping of the Glossy podcast at this year's Advertising Week, I spoke to former Glossier COO Henry Davis about the benefits and drawbacks of relying on social media to engage with customers. That's an interesting point because as a as a direct to consumer brand, uh, you know the industry talks so much about cutting out the middleman. It's it's more efficient. It's a better customer experience. You have more control over over what customers hear and get from you. But and platforms aren't really ever brought up in that conversation though, like the Instagrams and Facebooks of the world. So. Why, how is, is that the, is that harder? Is it, what are the parallels between cutting out a wholesale retailer and cutting out an Instagram? It's something we think about a lot and, and absolutely agree with what you just said. If, if you don't want to be disintermediated by a retailer, why would you allow yourself to be disintermediated by a social media platform further up the funnel? That's the premise that we're going after as the future of brand customer relationship. Uh, the reason um, the model that sort of been the dominant one up until now is the dominant one is because social media allowed people to cut the retailer out. So if you're a a beauty brand, the best way to reach the nation was Sephora or Macy's or someone who would help get your product in front of a lot of people. Social media meant that you didn't need the retailer to do that anymore. You could reach a huge number of people, a huge um, sort of amount of people very, very quickly. Um, and so people have actually leveraged social media for, for reach. Uh, as things have evolved and as direct consumer is moving more in the direction that we believe it should, which is about customer engagement, the limitations of those platforms are becoming more evident. Yes, they have a huge amount of reach, but they're monolithic platforms that are designed to engage the customer in a certain behavior that isn't always the right kind of behavior for the conversation you want to have. So we think about it uh, very much in terms of uh, what are those conversations and what are the formats that are best suited to them. So if you think about YouTube and color makeup, if we were to huddle after this over a mojito from the mojito bar and say, all right, what's the social media format that will be best for sharing a deep color makeup tutorial, we would invent YouTube. Like it is perfect, it is the perfect match. And that is what has driven this huge rise in color makeup sales over the last five years is the adoption of YouTube and Instagram as well. Actually, they both are perfect for that. But if we were to sit around and say, well, what's the best social media platform to talk about uh, acne skincare? It's probably not YouTube or Instagram, Uh, but what is it? Where does that live? That doesn't have a home. So we want to create a home for the conversations people want to have. Uh, And in so doing, we can build a platform that will allow us to not be disintermediated anymore by 
these, uh, these, as I said, monolithic platforms. I'll say it again. I think I think we should also remember what happened in 2011 with the Facebook bait and switch, where they leveraged brands to build these huge audiences, and then just changed the rules and said, by the way, you got to pay for them. I think Instagram with all the changes that are going on now, I don't want to speculate, but I imagine there's a business model shift coming. I'm curious to see what it will be. I think it will probably be something about uh, commerce on that platform, and I'm not sure how that will play out for, for brands. And so being closer to your customer is always the right answer. Always, always, always the right answer, and that's something that we're very focused on, and that's where we're investing time and money. Right, and I think you could say that the platforms are working with their own agendas, and that that clashes even more so than the, than the retailer's agenda might with a brand when it comes to a brand. I think that there's very um, very much uh, less partnership mm-hmm. with uh, with the retailers. If you look at um, brands like Milk or, or Drunk Elephant, these are fantastic brands that have partnered so well with retailers and created incredible experiences and incredible product offerings for customers. Um, I don't think there's that much integrity in the social media world. 2018 could be considered the year of consumer data. For retailers, how they collect and act on customer insights determines the success of their modern strategies. Back in June, we spoke to Madewell's Libby Wadel about how the company changed to incorporate customer data and feedback into their decision-making processes. So give us a glimpse um, in the Madewell offices. Do you have like data scientists sitting alongside merchandisers? Like, what are those conversations that are happening now that, that you think maybe, you know, 10 years ago when, when you were at Madewell weren't, weren't maybe happening so much before because it, it just didn't seem as pressing? Yeah, no, we do. I mean, I would say that our merchants are now armed with the data that they, they didn't have 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. So, you know, 10, 15 years ago, you, you would come in and you would look at selling reports and you would sort of act on, you know, what you had sold purely. Um, and I would say today there's, um, you know, much more information we're getting from, yeah, the sort of the marketing side of the business that mm-hmm. sits with the merchandising side. And um, it's, it's, it's just, you know, a really nice layer on um, to then build the plan for future seasons um, that really informs your decisions in a way that um, it's not so, I'd say, reactionary mm-hmm. to just what you see selling. Right. And and why do you think that's so important today in in retail? Just this this idea that the customer is at the center of all decisions, but it's like, well, the customer always had to be at at this and are at least a main priority, but what's, what's changed there? I think that there's a little bit more of an expectation that, you know, as a customer, we might already know what that person, what, what you want. I, I'm, I'm trying to think about how to, um, put this in, you know, customer, like from a customer's perspective. But um, when you get, you know, when you send an email, for instance, you know, it's, it's important that it speaks to me as a customer. And, and otherwise, I, there, I, I'm always getting tons of emails. So I'm just going to sort of delete through. So if there's something that really speaks to what I was interested in, what I was looking at, a conversation that I may have had, um, and there's data that can help inform that, mm-hmm. um, that's just going to sort of um, raise the level of interest, I would say, for me as a customer, if I, if I get an email um, that is much more meaningful to me than, you know, something that feels sort of generic. Mm -hmm. Because there's so much more noise. There's so much. 
With the rapid rise of direct-to-consumer brands, starting a brand is arguably easier than it has ever been before. And where there are successful startups, there will always be acquisitions. When I sat down with Athleta CEO Nancy Green, we talked about how Gap's acquisition of the brand was actually what brought her back to a company she had left and how Athleta has set the bar for the rest of Gap, Inc. You know, well, first of all, one of the reasons I came back to Gap, Inc. was that I had uh, read that Gap had acquired Athleta, and I was incredibly uh, passionate about working in this health and wellness space because I was an avid yogi. I've always been a very active person. And I really believed that there was this amazing opportunity to build uh, a lifestyle brand. So seeing that Gap Inc. had acquired Athleta was, was very, very interesting to me. And you know, it took a few years. You know, I came back, and eventually it was the right time for me to step into the role. But, you know, what, what really drew me to this specific opportunity was the mission of Athleta standing for women uh, at the time. And, you know, the fact that it was a brand centered on a woman's half healthy, active lifestyle. Um, and I just saw an incredible opportunity out there in the market where Athleta could become something that was truly unique and differentiated from all of the other retail apparel players, including the active players out there. Right. And so as Gap acquired Athleta, and so it's, I would assume, a smaller brand working within the Gap umbrella, what type of cultural environment do you have? Like, How do you make sure that it's cohesive with the, with the larger Gap brand, but still a, a, a unique brand within that, within that company? Yeah, it's, that's a great question. Um, well, let me start with Gap Inc. And, you know, I also sit on the Gap Inc. Board of Trustees uh, for the Foundation and Sustainability. And Gap Inc. has always been an incredible values-led organization. I mean, we've always been very involved in the communities. We've been leaders in standing up for what's right, both on the environment, social responsibility, equal rights, uh, and women and the advancement of women. So I've always been incredibly proud of what Gap Inc. has stood for as a company, and we've, we're generally have been way ahead of, of our competitors in the industry across all these issues. So I think that Athleta was very, very fortunate to be acquired by Gap Inc. because to be, to be able to take a company that is uh, very focused on empowerment of women and, and be that smaller, you know, new experiment within a larger corporate enterprise supported by incredible values allowed us to take what we were doing here even further. So we've always had the support from the values of what companies stood for. But within Athleta, we've really been able to further and experiment as a, as a smaller high growth brand on where we wanted to take our goals. Uh, and so I would say, you know, I look at Athleta as really being a point in the arrow of what's possible for Gap Inc. We've pushed very hard on very aggressive sustainability goals. Uh, one of the goals that we have is we'll be converting 80% of our fabrics to sustainable materials by 2020. We published that externally last year, uh, but we fit, we're right now we're halfway there. So we finished 2017 at 40%. We have a very aggressive commitment to putting 10,000 women through our PACE program. PACE is a program run by GAP. We will, uh, we're making great progress on that, and 10,000 women by 2020 will be involved in PACE, and, and that's our program that supports uh, the advancement of women who work in our factories. 
So I think the, the link into Gap Inc. is incredibly important for, for athletics to continue to push forward even more aggressively against purpose and values. Right. And, and so as, as a CEO in the, in the retail space, what values do you think, and I, you know, I think you just touched on the sustainability, um, you know, employee women's empowerment, what type of values do you hold really close though? And, and how do you make sure that those are being prioritized in a relatively tough retail market? You know, as a public company, you have to make sure that you're meeting sales goals at the same time. How do you, how do you balance those two that sometimes seem a little bit adverse to each other? Yeah, well, they, you know, first and foremost, we've always believed, and this is something I talk to my team, my leadership team, and my, my, my entire team, is that they never need to sit apart from each other. That running a sec- successful business with strong purpose and values must be intrinsically linked together because one allows you to do the other. And the larger and, you, know, you get as a company, the more responsibility you have to really be a change agent on what you want to do in the world and use your business as a platform for good. Another acquisition that was one of the most surprising of 2017 was Walmart's purchase of the digital menswear brand Bonobos. Andy Dunn, the brand's founder who is now Walmart's SVP of digital brands, joined the Glossy podcast at the beginning of the year to talk about why he opted for an acquisition instead of an IPO and what it means to have a permanent home for the brand. So, so now following the deal, what can Bonobos do? What can it? Where can it go as a brand that it wouldn't have been able to do otherwise? I know uh, Walmart has a lot of tech and innovation arms. It has a lot of in-house uh, focus on that area. Does that open a lot of doors for you? Um, y- you know, where have you sort of explored those that potential and those possibilities? The biggest thing for for me on why this deal was exciting is not actually directly Bonobos. It's the chance to take the model that we invented at Bonobos of building brands through the internet mm-hmm. that I very, very nerdily call digitally native vertical brands, mm-hmm. DNVBs, and to take that ecosystem and to become the leader in terms of building a collection of brands across different verticals in that ecosystem. So we're starting with Bonobos and with ModCloth, which was acquired just a few months before Bonobos. It's an indie vintage women's clothing brand, clothing brand with really inclusive sizing. And we hope that those two brands are the beginning, maybe kind of like the orange is the new black and the house of cards in the Netflix example. Maybe house of cards isn't the best example mm. these days. <laughs> but to, to go out and look at all the different verticals out there and see, can we acquire a brand in this space? Can we build a brand in this space? How do we start to build our own magical proprietary content division? And so for me, that's the primary reason we did this was to build that collection and to bring our way of building brands onto a bigger stage. When it comes to Bonobo specifically, there are a few ways that we get better. First, we get a safe and permanent home, which is not to be underestimated. You know, being a standalone brand these days is hard. Taking a standalone brand public really makes you beholden to quarterly swings and quarterly results. And I think we've seen a few brands with great IPOs that have made it out particularly in activewear. So if you look at the last 10 years, Under Armour and Lululemon, I would point out. Mm -hmm. We've then had other brands that have gone public that are apparel without the same total addressable market as, say, a Lululemon or underwear. Take Vince as an example. You have a couple of bad quarters and your stock gets destroyed. Mm. And so the first thing that I think about for Bonobos is having a safe home where we can take a long-term view 
rather than being beholden to quarterly earnings, you know, which is very hard as a singular brand to get right quarter after quarter. The second piece is innovation coming not just from what we do at Bonobos, but from within the broader ecosystem at Walmart. And so one of the things that Mark has launched is called store number eight. Mm -hmm. And store number eight is our technology incubator. It's almost like an internal venture capital firm, except where we fully fund concepts in AI, um, in virtual reality, in whatever applications we see that can transform the future of retail. And whatever the learnings are there, whatever the insights are, the technology products and services that come out of that, we can then apply to Bonobos. So there is going to be an enhanced ability to innovate. And then lastly, there's just an amazing ecosystem of talent and learnings and insights about how to do e-commerce when we're a part of this bigger platform. With all of the change that has occurred in the retail industry this year, there is one thing that's still certain. Amazon remains a monstrous force. But for some people, like Nordstrom's VP of Creative Projects, Olivia Kim, Amazon is merely a reminder of consumers' expectations of convenience. What is more important to Kim is the entire customer experience, including curation. The reason why I do my job is because I want, I want, I want more customers shopping with us in general. I mean, point blank is I'm interested in getting more and more people to come and shop with us however they choose to shop with us, whether that's in-store or whether that's online, whether that's a combination of in-store and online. Um, and I think that the point of, 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 of being in a role like mine is that I get to engage our customers. I get to, to give them a physical experience. I get to give them a, a creative and exciting digital experience. Um, but I'm most curious about the way customers are shopping. And I think that that comes down to convenience and it comes down to product. Like we have to be able to, and I don't mean convenience in the sense that you can have it exactly, you know, as fast as you want. I think that convenience means more than just speed. I think convenience means preference. How do you want to shop with us? Do you want this experience that's super high touch and in store and you come in and, and I can match you up with a stylist or, or a personal shopper and we can do a two hour tour of the store. I can have all these things waiting for you based on previous conversations or convenience to you might just mean like I can meet you outside. I can pick up your um, return or give you everything that you've selected previously through your phone and then you can take that home and review it however you like. Um, but I think that that convenience shouldn't be misinterpreted as speed. I think that convenience means however, you know, however customized you want that shopping experience to be, if that makes sense. Yeah. And, and, and you know, you, you mentioned convenience. Obviously, Amazon comes to mind. Are you are you thinking about Amazon's presence in, in retail? And and if so, like, how do you consider it and in, in relation to to your job? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't I don't to be honest, like I don't think about Amazon. Um, I think that they're awesome as what they do. And I love the fact that they're our neighbor physically here in Seattle. I love the fact that they keep us on their toe on our toes in terms of, you know, thinking about their different technologies and, and, and what they're doing. But I don't necessarily see that um, as competition for what I'm interested in doing. You know, I'm really about experience and, and bringing experience and product and innovative, cool ideas and matching our customers with some of the most creative individuals out there in fashion and art and culture, um, which is a very different thing than what Amazon is. is you know, I, 
I think that what Amazon does is, is great on its own, um, but I don't necessarily see that as something that's competitive to what we're, we're focused on. Thank you for tuning into the Glossy Podcast this year. We'll be back on January 2nd with another episode. If you've been enjoying the Glossy Podcast and aren't a Glossy Plus subscriber yet, it's time to consider joining to get access to all of Glossy's content, member events, ticket discounts, Slack chats, and more. As a reward for listening, use the code Hillary25 at glossy.co slash plus to get 25% off an annual subscription. That's H-I-L-A-R-Y 25 at glossy.co slash plus. And as always, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and Anchor FM and leave us any feedback you have.